0: chapter 4 of the professor this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the professor by charlotte brontë chapter 4 no man likes to acknowledge that he has made a mistake in the choice of his profession and every man worthy of the name, will row long against wind and tide, before he allows himself to cry out, I am baffled, and submits to be floated passively back to land. From the first week of my residence in X, I felt my occupation irksome. The thing itself, the work of copying and translating business letters, was a dry and tedious task enough. But had that been all, I should long have borne with the nuisance. I am not of an impatient nature, and influenced by the double desire of getting my living and justifying to myself and others the resolution i had taken to become a tradesman i should have endured in silence the rust and cramp of my best faculties i should not have whispered even inwardly that i longed for liberty i should have bent in every sigh by which my heart might have ventured to intimate its distress under the closeness smoke monotony and joyless tumult of big ben Close and its panting desire for freer and fresher scenes i should have set up the image of duty the fetish of perseverance in my small bedroom at mrs king's lodgings and they too should have been my household gods from which my darling my cherished and secret imagination the tender and the mighty should never either by softness or strength have severed me but this was not all the antipathy which had sprung up between myself and my employer striking deeper root and spreading denser shade daily excluded me from every glimpse of the sunshine of life and i began to feel like a plant growing in humid darkness out of the slimy walls of a well antipathy is the only word which can express the feeling edward crimsworth had for me a feeling in a great measure involuntary and which was liable to be excited by every the most trifling movement look or word of mine My southern accent annoyed him. The degree of education evinced in my language irritated him. My punctuality, industry, and accuracy fixed his dislike, and gave it the high flavor and poignant relish of envy. He feared that I too should one day make a successful businessman. Had I been in anything inferior to him, he would not have hated me so thoroughly, but I knew all that he knew, and what was worse, he suspected that I kept the padlock of silence on mental wealth in which he was no sharer if he could have once placed me in a ridiculous or mortifying position he would have forgiven me much but i was guarded by three faculties caution tact observation and prowling and prying as was edward's malignity it could never baffle the lynx eyes of these my natural sentinels day by day did his malice watch my tact hoping it would sleep and prepared to steal snake-like on its slumber but tact if it be genuine, never sleeps. I had received my first quarter's wages, and was returning to my lodgings, possessed heart and soul with the pleasant feeling that the master who had paid me grudged every penny of that hard-earned pittance. I had long ceased to regard Mr. Crimsworth as my brother. He was a hard-grinding master. He wished to be an inexorable tyrant. That was all. Thoughts, not varied but strong, occupied my mind two voices spoke within me. Again and again they uttered the same monotonous phrases. One said, "'William, your life is intolerable. The other, what can you do to alter it?' I walked fast, for it was a cold, frosty night in January. As I approached my lodgings, I turned from a general view of my affairs to the particular speculation as to whether my fire would be out. Looking towards the window of my sitting-room, I saw no cheering red gleam. "'That slut of a servant has neglected it, as usual,' said I, "'and I shall see nothing but pale ashes if I go in. "'It is a fine starlight night. "'I will walk a little farther.' "'It was a fine night, and the streets were dry and even clean for X. "'There was a crescent curve of moonlight to be seen by the parish church tower, "'and hundreds of stars shone keenly bright in all quarters of the sky. "'Unconsciously I steered my course towards the country,' I had got into Grove Street and began to feel the pleasure of seeing dim trees at the extremity, round a suburban house, when a person leading over the iron gate of one of the small gardens which front the neat dwelling-houses in this street addressed me as I was hurrying with quick stride past. "'What the deuce is a hurry? Just so must Lot have left Sodom when he expected fire to pour down upon it, out of burning brass clouds.' I stopped short and looked towards the speaker. I smelt the fragrance and saw the red spark of a cigar. The dusk outline of a man, too, bent towards me over the wicket. "'You see, I'm meditating in the field at eventide,' continued this shade. "'God knows it's cool work, especially as instead of Rebecca on a camel's hump, with bracelets on her arms and a ring in her nose, Fate sends me only a counting-house clerk in a great tweed wrapper. The voice was familiar to me. Its second utterance enabled me to seize the speaker's identity. Mr. Hunston, good evening. Good evening, indeed. Yes, but you would have passed me without recognition if I had not been so civil as to speak first. I did not know you. A famous excuse. You ought to have known me. I knew you though you are going ahead like a steam-engine. Are the police after you? It wouldn't be worth their while. I'm not of consequence enough to attract them. Alas, poor shepherd! Alack and well a day! What a theme for regret! And how down in the mouth you must be, judging from the sound of your voice. But since you're not running from the police, from whom are you running? The devil? On the contrary, I'm going post to him. That is well. You are just in luck. This is Tuesday evening. There are scores of market gigs and carts returning to Dinnerford to night, and he or some of his have a seat in all regularly. So if you will step in and sit half an hour in my bachelor's parlour, you may catch him as he passes without much trouble. I think, though, you had better let him alone to night. He'll have so many customers to serve. Tuesday is his busy day in X and Dinnerford. Come in at all events. He swung the wicket open as he spoke. "'Do you really wish me to go in?' I asked. "'As you please. I'm alone. Your company for an hour or two would be agreeable to me. But if you don't choose to favour me so far, I'll not press the point. I hate to bore anyone.' It suited me to accept the invitation as it suited Hunston to give it. I passed through the gate and followed him to the front door, which he opened. Thence we traversed a passage and entered his parlour. The door being shut, he pointed me to an armchair by the hearth. I sat down and glanced round me. It was a comfortable room, at once snug and handsome. The bright grate was filled with a genuine blankshire fire, red, clear, and generous. No penurious south-of-England embers heaped in the corner of a grate. On the table a shaded lamp diffused around a soft, pleasant, and equal light. The furniture was almost luxurious for a young bachelor, comprising a couch and two very easy chairs. Bookshelves filled the recesses on each side of the mantelpiece. They were well furnished and arranged with perfect order. The neatness of the room suited my taste. I hate irregular and slovenly habits. From what I saw, I concluded that hunston's ideas on that point corresponded with my own. While he removed from the centre table to the sideboard a few pamphlets and periodicals I ran my eye along the shelves of the bookcase nearest me. French and German works predominated. The old French dramatists, sundry modern authors, Thiers, Villemain, Paul de George Sand, Eugene Sue. In German, goethe Schiller, Chocker, Jean-Paul Richter. In English there were works on political economy. I examined no further, for Mr. Hunsden himself recalled my attention. You shall have something, said he, for you ought to feel disposed for refreshment after walking nobody knows how far on such a Canadian night as this. But it shall not be brandy and water, and it shall not be a bottle of port, nor ditto of sherry. I keep no such poison. I have Rhine wine for my own drinking, and you may choose between that and coffee. Here again Hunston suited me. If there was one generally received practice, I abhorred more than another— It was the habitual imbibing of spirits and strong wines. I had, however, no fancy for his acid German nectar. But I liked coffee, so I responded, Give me some coffee, Mr. Hunsden. I perceived my answer pleased him. He had doubtless expected to see a chilling effect produced by his steady announcement that he would give me neither wine nor spirits. He just shot one searching glance at my face to ascertain whether my cordiality was genuine or a mere feint of politeness. I smiled, because I quite understood him, and while I honoured his conscientious firmness, I was amused at his mistrust. He seemed satisfied, rang the bell, and ordered coffee, which was presently brought. For himself, a bunch of grapes and half a pint of something sour sufficed. My coffee was excellent, I told him so, and expressed the shuddering pity with which his anchorite fare inspired me he did not answer and i scarcely think heard my remark at that moment one of those momentary eclipses i before alluded to had come over his face extinguishing his smile and replacing by an abstracted and alienated look the customarily shrewd bantering glance of his eye i employed the interval of silence in a rapid scrutiny of his physiognomy i had never observed him closely before and as my sight is very short I had gathered only a vague, general idea of his appearance. I was surprised now, on examination, to perceive how small, and even feminine, were his lineaments. His tall figure, long and dark locks, his voice and general bearing, had impressed me with the notion of something powerful and massive. Not at all. My own features were cast in a harsher and squarer mould than his. I discerned that there would be contrast between his inward and outward man contentions too for i suspected his soul had more of will and ambition than his body had of fibre and muzzle perhaps in these incompatibilities of the physique with the morale lay the secret of that fitful gloom he would but could not and the athletic mind sculls scorn on its more fragile companion as to his good looks i should have liked to have a woman's opinion on that subject it seemed to me that his face might produce the same effect on a lady that a very piquant and interesting, though scarcely pretty, female face would on a man. I have mentioned his dark locks. They were brushed sideways, above a white and sufficiently expansive forehead. His cheek had a rather hectic freshness. His features might have done well on canvas, but indifferently in marble. They were plastic. Character had set a stamp upon each. Expression recast them at her pleasure, and strange metamorphosis she wrought, "'giving him now the mien of a morose bull "'and alien that of an arch and mischievous girl. "'More frequently the two semblances were blent, "'and a queer, composite countenance they made. "'Starting from a silent fit, he began, "'William, what a fool you are to live in those dismal lodgings of Mrs. King's, "'when you might take rooms here in Grove Street and have a garden like me. "'I should be too far from the mill.' what of that it would do you good to walk there and back two or three times a day besides are you such a fossil that you never wish to see a flower on a green leaf i am no fossil what are you then you sit at that desk in crimsworth's counting-house day by day and week by week scraping with a pen on paper just like an automaton you never get up you never say you are tired you never ask for a holiday you never take change or relaxation you give way to no excess of an evening. You neither keep wild company nor indulge in strong drink. Do you, Mr. Hunsden? Don't think to pose me with short questions. Your case and mine are diametrically different, and it is nonsense attempting to draw a parallel. I say that when a man endures patiently what ought to be unendurable, he's a fossil. Whence do you acquire the knowledge of my patience? Why, man, do you suppose you're a mystery? The other night you seemed surprised at my knowing to what family you belonged. Now you find subject for wonderment in my calling you patient. What do you think I do with my eyes and ears? I've been in your counting-house more than once when Crimsworth has treated you like a dog. Called for a book, for instance, and when you gave him the wrong one, or what he chose to consider the wrong one, flung it back almost in your face. Desired you to shut or open the door as if you had been its flunky to say nothing of your position at the party about a month ago, where you had neither place nor partner, but hovered about like a poor shabby hanger-on, and how patient you were under each and all of these circumstances. Well, Mr. Hunston, what then? I can hardly tell you what then. The conclusion to be drawn as to your character depends upon the nature of the motives which guide your conduct. If you are patient because you expect to make something eventually out of Crimsworth, notwithstanding his tyranny, or perhaps by means of it, you are what the world calls an interested and mercenary, but may a very wise fellow. If you are patient because you think it a duty to meet insult with submission, you are an essential sap, and in no shape the man for my money. If you are patient because your nature is phlegmatic, flat, inexcitable, and that you cannot get up to the pitch of resistance, why, God made you to be crushed, and lie down by all means, and lie flat and let juggernaut ride well over you mr hunston's eloquence was not it will be perceived of the smooth and oily order as he spoke he pleased me ill i seemed to recognize in him one of those characters who sensitive enough themselves are selfishly relentless towards the sensitiveness of others moreover though he was neither like crimsworth nor lord tyndale yet he was acrid and i suspected overbearing in his way There was a tone of despotism in the urgency of the very reproaches by which he aimed at goading the oppressed into rebellion against the oppressor. Looking at him still more fixedly than I had yet done, I saw written in his eye and mien a resolution to arrogate to himself a freedom so unlimited that it might often trench on the just liberty of his neighbours. I rapidly ran over these thoughts, and then I laughed a low and involuntary laugh moved thereto by a slight inward revelation of the inconsistency of man it was as i thought hunsden had expected me to take with calm his incorrect and offensive surmises his bitter and haughty taunts and himself was chafed by a laugh scarce louder than a whisper his brow darkened his thin nostril dilated a little yes he began i told you that you were an aristocrat and who but an aristocrat would laugh such a laugh as that and look such a look? A laugh frigidly jeering, a look lazily mutinous, gentlemanlike irony, patrician resentment. What a nobleman you would have made, William Crimsworth. You're cut out for one. Pity fortune has baulked nature. Look at the features, figure, even to the hands. Distinction all over, ugly distinction. Now, if you had only an estate and a mansion and a park and a title how you could play the exclusive maintain the rights of your class train your tenantry in habits of respect to the peerage oppose at every step the advancing power of the people support your rotten order and be ready for its sake to wade knee-deep in churl's blood as it is you have no power you can do nothing you are wrecked and stranded on the shores of commerce forced into collision with practical men with whom you cannot cope for You'll never be a tradesman. The first part of Hunston's speech moved me not at all, or if it did, it was only to wonder at the perversion into which prejudice had twisted his judgment of my character. The concluding sentence, however, not only moved but shook me. The blow it gave was a severe one, because truth wielded the weapon. If I smiled now, it was only in disdain of myself. Hunsden saw his advantage. He followed it up. "'You'll make nothing by trade,' continued he. "'Nothing more than the crust of dry bread "'and the draught of fair water on which you now live. "'Your only chance of getting a competency "'lies in marrying a rich widow "'or running away with an heiress. "'I leave such shifts to be put in practice "'by those who devise them,' said I, rising. "'And even that is hopeless,' he went on coolly. What widow would have you, much less what heiress? You are not bold and venturesome enough for the one, nor handsome and fascinating enough for the other. You think perhaps you look intelligent and polished. Carry your intellect and refinement to market, and tell me in a private note what is bid for them. Mr. Hunsden had taken his tone for the night. The string he struck was out of tune. He would finger no other. Averse to discord, of which I had enough every day and all day long, I concluded, at last, that silence and solitude were preferable to jarring converse. I bade him good-night. "'What? Are we going, lad? Well, good-night. You'll find the door.' And he sat still in front of the fire, while I left the room and the house. I had got a good way on my return to my lodgings, before I found out that I was walking very fast, and breathing very hard, and that my nails were almost stuck into the palms of my clenched hands and that my teeth were set fast. On making this discovery, I relaxed both my pace, fists, and jaws, but I could not so soon cause the regrets rushing rapidly through my mind to slacken their tide. Why did I make myself a tradesman? Why did I enter Hunston's house this evening? Why, at dawn to-morrow, must I repair to Crimsworth's mill? All that night did I ask myself these questions, and all that night fiercely demanded of my soul an answer. I got no sleep, my head burned, my feet froze. At last the factory bells rang, and I sprang from my bed with other slaves. End of chapter 4